Today we're going to be in 1 Samuel 14. And the last time we saw God was really in the process of taking King Saul's dynasty because of his pride and presumptuousness. And today uh, we're going to look at one of my favorite persons in the Bible is Jonathan, which is the son of King Saul. And I just want to encourage all of you out there, you know, we all come from different homes, some good homes, not so, some not so good, some dysfunctional. But the really cool thing is you see a guy like King Saul, and he was really a lot about pretense, um, didn't really, wasn't really a spirit-led guy. But then his son Jonathan turns out to be like a number one first class. So it, it really doesn't matter who your family is and what you come from and what your ethnicity is. The bottom line is if you really want to be used by the Lord, the Lord will use you. So... We're going to jump in with verse 1 in 1 Samuel 14. It says, Now it happened that one day that Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who bore his armor, his armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So you see just Jonathan and his armor bearer. And the idea is to attack the Philistines' uh, garrison, of course, with the Lord's approval. Now in verse 2, we see King Saul. And it says that he was sitting. But if you look in the Hebrew, that also can mean waiting. And it also can mean settled. And there's no indication that King Saul was waiting upon the Lord. He just was sitting there under the pomegranate tree. And you might say, well, what's the big deal? Because in this world, there are two types of people. Those that want the Lord to use them and to work through them. And those that are just happy to let the moving of the Spirit pass them by. You see, Saul had all this equipment. He had uh, men. He had things at his disposal. He had the priests. And all Jonathan had was his armor bearer. It was just him and one other guy. And I just want to read 2 Chronicles 16.9. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly, therefore from now on you shall have wars. And there's a context to this, but what we see is that it's a shame that God has to scan the earth to and fro to find a person, a guy, a gal, here or there, that will raise their hand and say, Lord, use me. And again, it's not to show himself strong to the person, but it's for the Lord to be shown strong. So for the person not to take credit for it. Okay? So... The question is, which one do we want to be? Do we want to be like Saul, just kind of sitting around, doing nothing, taking advantage, um, settling uh, on our laurels, or do we want to be like Jonathan? Verse 4. 1 Samuel 14, verse 4. Now, between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other. And the name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sene. The front of one faced northward opposite Mishmash, and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. 
it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So in order to get to the Philistines, we see he's got to go through a pass, and we see that there's a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other. Now, if you've ever studied military excursions, you'll know that not a good idea. You go through that pass, there's not much place to go, there's wiggle room, and there could be, you could be set up for an ambush. So not a good idea in the world. However, if the Lord is calling us to do something, it may not be to easy street. It may be something difficult. It may be a challenge that's before us that we may say, gee, this is it's a little dangerous here, but it's something that the Lord wants us to do. And I would say this, that the Lord is worth it. Even if it costs us some personal peril and some difficulties, the Lord wants us to do it, we should do it. And in verse 6, Jonathan basically says, God doesn't need a whole army to destroy an enemy. He can use many or he can use a few. And I love the way this man's mind works. I love the way his heart is. I love the way he thinks. Imagine if in Israel today or back then that was the prevailing idea. The borders would be vastly different. And the state of Israel today would probably have a lot more oil. What about the church? Sometimes the church rests on its laurels as well. They look at the glory days of the past, and they're not being filled with the spirit. They don't have the heart like Jonathan. It's more of a a mindset of King Saul. Uh, No doubt Jonathan remembered, so he's going to do this this by all anyone's observations, this crazy idea, this suicide mission. But remember Leviticus 26, 7 and 8, and I've quoted it, that your five will chase 100 and your 100 will chase 10,000. And the armor bearer says to Jonathan, what? No way, man, you're crazy. There's just two of us. No, in the Bible, it actually says in verse seven, so his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. So he has the same heart, this unnamed armor bearer. And you know, when we're in ministry, we need to be supported by like-minded people. See, what if the armor bearer, there's only two of them, what if he discouraged Jonathan? What if he said, you're nuts? There's only two of us. We can't do this. Could have been discouraging. You know, leaders need to be, you know, you've heard the expression to have their arms lifted, sometimes physically, sometimes, well, all the time spiritually, but sometimes emotionally as well. And there's an understanding that we have to have when we're in ministry, a parallel ministry versus a supportive ministry. Parallel ministries don't work. They divide a church. We need to all be working together to support, to have supportive ministries for what the vision of the Lord has for our particular church or organization. And it's really cool. Every pastor and ministry leaders need an armor bearer with this type of heart. Whatever your heart says, I'm with you. Let's go do it. So it's pretty neat. Verse 8. Then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us and we will go up. For the Lord has delivered them into our hand and this will be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. I just have to stop there. It's very sad. These are God's people. And the, the ungodly, the ones that don't have the, the Shekinah glory in the camp, 
uh, are looking at the, at the Hebrews and saying, look at these cowards, they're coming out of the holes. Very sad when God's people uh, don't show that we trust him. All right? 12, then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you something. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. See, he didn't take the credit for himself. I just loved everything about Jonathan. And of course, Jonathan was trying not to be presumptuous. And he said, you know, if the Lord has the Philistines call us up, hey, it, it game on. And if he doesn't, says, they say, stay still, we're going to come down to you, then let's run like heck and get out of here because <laughs> certainly the Lord hasn't given us the victory. Now, verse 12 can also be translated, come up here and we'll teach you a lesson. So you have to understand the Hebrew idioms. You have to understand how they translate into the English. And we're like, oh, yeah, we're familiar with that. Well, come here, we're going to show you something. But uh, it must have been such an adrenaline dump to be able to go up there and take the victory. I mean, we've had some fun with the teens playing paintball, but this certainly was much better because the Holy Spirit was on their side. You know what I'm saying? Verse 13. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. So here's this rush of excitement. These guys are climbing up so fast that they're on their hands and their knees. But now remember, there's an elevation issue. Again, tactically not smart. Again, you follow all the military battles. The person with the high ground has a major advantage. And you got two guys going after this garrison. And I could just picture them like billy goats. You know, I love to picture it in my mind, just, you know, crawling and scraping their hands, their feet. I mean, these guys are just charging up that hill after those Philistines. Uh, you know, you just get, you get excited reading about it. And uh, the Philistines end up falling before them. Could have been assisted by God, but it also could have been their overconfidence got the better of them. And, uh, you know, these guys just came up and startled them. They started falling, and the armor bearer starts running them through with the sword. And the results were a slaughter of 20 uh, Philistines. Now, if we look at the Philistines, and we can do this. We know there are types in the scripture. We've done this before. If the Philistines are a picture of sin... And if the Philistines are a picture of obstacles to the child of God, to trust in God is the answer to any insurmountable problem in our life. We have to understand that. Victory is always in reach to the one who trusts the Lord. I mean, we see this over and over and over. And we read the Old Testament, and it's so exciting because we really get these general ideas that keep repeating themselves in Scripture. So we can take confidence. Of course, the caveat is that we wouldn't do anything that's against his will. And we know that if it goes against his word, it's against his will. So that being that understanding should go without saying. 15. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled. And the earth quaked so that it was a very great, great trembling. So God gave him a little help with a little earthquake there. But let's remember this. The Philistines had numbers. They had chariots. They had armor. They had horsemen. They had professional soldiers. Remember, the last chapter ends with uh, you don't get your blade sharpened or your machete to cut down the brush unless you go down to the Philistines and they got the grinding wheels and they do it for you. 
They're not going to make swords for, the, for the, the Hebrews. We read this through scripture. Very few had swords and armor because the Philistines held them in bondage. Yeah, right? That picture of sin holding God's people at bay so that they can't even fight and defend themselves. So this is what's going on here. But it is exciting because, you know, I, I just look at this and I think even in my own life, wow, God can do anything. And uh, if, what does it mean? How are we going to reach out to the community? You know, what are we going to do with the homeless? Uh, what about the missionaries? All these things that I just believe that God can do anything. So let's just do it. You know, whatever idea it is, and if it's something that's, that's evangelistic or something where we want to reach out to others, let's just do it and see what the Lord does. I love that. I love having that attitude. Verse 16. Now the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away, and they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. So there's a few things going on here. Saul's men see, you know, there is an elevation issue, there's a, a, you know, a clear day, and they can see there's a tumult, there's, there's chaos happening in the Philistine garrison. And they're wondering what's happened. So uh, Saul takes roll call. Well, what's going on? Did some of our guys get over there and start fighting them? So they start calling off the name of their squads and platoons and their leaders. And they find out that the only two that are missing are his son and the armor bearer. And Saul brings the ark of God for a little insurance. Saul's a weird guy, I'm telling you. When you start to really understand him through all the chapters, he kind of throws you. You almost think he's kind of religious or maybe spiritual at a time. And, but this was really, it was a show. It was a, he's a relics guy. He's a religious guy. See, the ark of God, uh, God said that his presence would dwell between the cherubim on the mer- mercy seat. So this was almost like, a, like an amulet, like a little charm that you wear around your neck. Or even some that wear the cross and think that it really has some power. It doesn't. It's just a piece of gold or silver around your neck. Now, I don't, I'm going off on a tangent here. I don't have a problem with people who do that, but understand, it isn't the piece of metal that saves us. It's our faith in the Lord. So this is what Saul is doing. He's bringing this ark of God and hedging his bets. But he doesn't even wait for the priest to divine to see if this is the Lord's will or not. He, he, it's starting to increase the excitement and, and the, the chaos in the Philistine camp. So he has the ark of God brought in and he says, withdraw your hand. Let's go to battle. So he doesn't even finish what he's doing. You know, this, he's just an unstable type of guy. So he, you know, he takes, they go into battle and many who are in, in hiding come out and they fight as well. But I look at this and saying, Lead by example. If you have a fearless leader, then those who might be scared 
will come and join the battle. Now, I'm not talking about King Saul because he's the one who was just hanging out under the tree and everybody, you know, the Hebrews are hiding in holes and they're scared and they're, they're this way and that way. But then Jonathan shows them, hey, the Lord's going to give the victory to Israel. Let's do it. So it's he's the one. He's the leader that the others look to. And all of a sudden, they, that bravery just starts to uh, be magnified. You know what I'm saying? And, and just it, it's, it's neat how that works. So King Saul, he's dawdling. He has everything at his disposal. And he ends up not doing anything with it, but following his son into battle. And we'll see a little jealousy that starts to happen. And then when David comes in, even more jealousy because he's not even his son. All right, so it gets worse for Saul over time in these, two, in these few chapters. Now, Jonathan, on the other hand, has what I call the Philippians 4.13 mentality, which is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's his attitude. If the Lord is with us, so there's only two of us. God's done that before. Let's do it. I love that attitude. And even as, as people of God, you know, in our circle of influence and for those around us, um, you know, we should be the ones that set the tone to trust God. Especially if we have friends and family and coworkers and neighbors that don't know the Lord, we should be setting that tone with them. They should be looking us at us as the spiritual ones who are willing to go in and trust the Lord with our lives. And that should uh, come off to them as well. We can look at the church and see that some are just the social club. There is no moving of the Holy Spirit. And some really want to have this Jonathan-like attitude to be led by the Spirit. I know what I want our church to be. Verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. And we, we have to look at his wording, too. You know, we just read that, that God gave Israel the victory. Saul really focuses on himself a lot. They weren't his enemies. They were God's enemies. They were harassing the people. Right? There's just some subtleties there with King Saul. But he distresses. The, another word for that in Hebrew is he exhausts the people with his oath. So, you, you know, battles take a long time. They can take days. So he's telling them, now nobody can eat anything until, you know, we win the battle or I take vengeance on my enemies. He's not guided by the Holy Spirit. Um, He's, it's some fleshly boasting that sounds good on the surface, but it really has no value underneath it. And you know, there are some that, that can fool us. They can have an appearance of spirituality. They can say spiritual things, but something's just a little off. There's this subtleties, just like with King Saul. It's a little off. And religion, if you look at religion, it always seems to burden while the spirit refreshes and gives us joy and peace. You understand? Um, as I'm looking at this and I'm looking at Saul's uh, oath, you, you look at, and different, different religions, it's not just even in Christianity, where there's mandatory fasts. You know, when, I, when Jesus speaks about the fast, he says, when you fast. And don't do it and don't, you know, give the appearance that, you know, you're really suffering when you do it. There's a reason for the fast. And then in religion, religion imposes those burdens. You must fast for these times. And I'll tell you, I've talked to Muslims and different people who fast, and they'll say, before the fast, we gorge ourselves. We stuff ourselves with as much as we can get. And then as soon as the fast is over, we do it again. That kind of defeats the purpose, you know what I'm saying? It's like, um, I don't know. You, you can figure it out. It's more of a, a, 
a fleshly exercise than a spiritual exercise. It defeats the entire point. Verse 25. Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his countenance was brightened. (laughs) He didn't want to get stung, so he took the rod. No, I'm just, I'm reading into it. I don't know if that's the case. It was this six-foot pole there. But Jonathan's he's fighting all day. He's, he's burning up massive amounts of energy. He sees the honey, and uh, honey has natural carbs and enzymes and protein. If there was propolis falling into it, and this, this was what did it. And it's funny, because every time that I'm, I'm out working outside in the yard, and I'm, I'm hot, and I'm tired, and I'm, I'm like, let me taste that honey. And I think of Jonathan all the time now, so it's pretty neat. But this is what Jonathan's body really needed at the time. And it says his countenance brightened or it brought vitality back to his body. His, his body just, it just, it just drank, drank it in and it, it refreshed him. Verse 28. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats this food, who eats food this day. And the people were faint. The people cared about Jonathan. They were concerned. They loved him. And, and they were warning him, you know, I don't know if you know this, but your dad said, cursed is the man who does this. So they were concerned. However, Jonathan, and we'll see from his response, it didn't frighten him. The curse didn't worry him. And, and I've seen Christians get worried about this stuff. What if somebody, uh, a Satanist or a witch, you know, says, I'm poking you with a dog. I've heard this stuff. Or, or they pronounce a curse on me. Should I be afraid? Well, we can go to 1 John 4, 4 and say that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We have the Holy Spirit, right? So what can man do to us? Is God that powerless that if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, that someone's little ritual or voodoo or or pin poking in a doll is going to do anything to us? I don't think so. I don't think so. I got to tell you, I love black cats. I walk under ladders. I have opened up umbrellas in my house and so far so good, you know, but... (laughs) But it's sadder when there's superstition in the church. You know, um, there are, again, some that come and say, you know, my church told me that I had to do this. I would say to you that if it's not in the scripture, and if it's not commanded by God, and if it's one of man's rules, don't worry about it. It can't have an effect on you. I just go with what God says. Verse 29. But Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? So Jonathan reasons with the people. He says, look, I'm fine. I tasted the honey. Nothing's happening to me. You know, my dad has really made a mess of the kingdom. uh, And he's really not a good leader. And it took a lot of guts for Jonathan to say. But... Again, he's more concerned with what God says than his father's foolish oaths. And that's what we need today. We need leaders who don't toe the denominational line, that don't toe the evangelical line, that don't look at what's happening in current events and this is the way Western Christianity is and just say, you know what, but this is what the Bible says. Right? That's more important, to have spirit-led leaders. Verse 31. Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Mishmash to 
Aijalon, so the people were very faint. And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. And that was so they could sacrifice the animal or kill it in a certain way, the prescribed way that wasn't uh, terrifying to the animal and the blood would drain out and uh, it, could, it could be kosher, so to speak. What they were doing was not kosher. It wasn't according to Levitical law here. They were just famished. They were starving, right? Verse 34, and Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep, slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. That's key. That's key. How long has Saul been leading the people? How long has he supposedly been anointed? And this is the first time he does it. And again, he goes back and forth between seemingly like he's doing the right thing and then it's, it's a pretense. But here's the scene. Um, these, these guys are starving. They're hungry. Uh, it's been a long time since they ate. So as soon as the word is that the slaughter is over, this is what they're doing. They're acting like um, savages. They're acting like animals. They're just tearing the flesh apart, probably not waiting till it's fully cooked and just eating it with the blood. And again, it's against... And, and whose fault is this? It's not God's fault. It's King Saul's fault. He was the one who brought this upon the people, Right? You know, in Christianity today, there's a lot of wavering back and forth. I see King Saul as a picture sometimes of Western Christianity. Sometimes it's doing the right thing. Sometimes it's following these books and these trends. And then they seem to go back and forth and back. And you follow it. And sometimes it's like a tennis match. King Saul was, let me just explain this. King Saul was an unstable man in his spirit, in his mind, in his actions, and we're going to see it get worse because of the constant wavering back and forth, back and forth. 36. And Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, let us draw near to God here. Hey, Saul, hang on for a minute. Why don't we see what the Lord says about this? So Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. Right, right away, he, you can see the jealousy that he has for his son. His son is, again, no doubt a man of the spirit, but right off the bat, if there's a sin, Jonathan, you know, that's the first person that comes to his mind, his own son. But not a man among all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you be on one side and my son, Jonathan, and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore, Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. So, so you understand what this is, is the, the, the closest thing that I can explain it to, if you were to watch it happening, was like dice. And maybe rolling dice was a, a take, because lots came many years before dice were invented. 
So they would roll the stones and, and they would d- divine and um, the way the Lord allowed certain stones to come out would determine, you know, it would actually point to the person or not, okay? So Saul said, cast lots now between my son and me. So it's him and him, Saul and Jonathan and the rest of the camp and the lot falls on him and Jonathan. So now he separates himself and his son and the lot falls on Jonathan. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die. And Saul answered, God do so and more also for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Wow. He could have got rid of him. His own son, get rid of him. No more problems. No more sneaking out of the camp and, 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 and winning the battles for the Lord. It seems like it's over. But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great salvation in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan that he did not die. Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Did he, if he really believed that his son was the evil that caused this, the Lord not to answer, he should have killed his son if he really believed that. But again, it was just another way of King Saul speaking before he prayed or before he thought. And this is a little hard to understand uh, because it does seem that the lot points to Jonathan. But remember, what I believe is happening here is that there was sin in the camp, and God wanted to reveal what Jonathan did, okay, so that the people could see what was going on and, and to really reveal Saul's motives. That's what I believe. So God was going to expose it because there was that sin in the camp. And what happens is uh, his bluff is called. If he really was a man of, John, uh, of God and Jonathan was the problem, he, he relented because the people said, no, it's not going to happen. Remember, we've talked about Saul and the popularity and things like that. Look at our presidents and our our senators. Uh, You know, they they do. They they check with these pollsters before they decide whether to vote on certain issues or not. It's all about them getting reelected. It's really not about what's what's right and what's wrong. And some leaders live like that. So the relationship with uh, Jonathan and his father becomes more tenuous as time goes on. Now, I will say this to you today. For those who may be giving you a hard time in your life when you leave this building, if you seek after the things of God, others will give you a hard time. They may be religious, like King Saul. They may uh, have an appearance of spirituality. They may be in your own church, in your own family. If you really want to serve the Lord and you're spirit-filled, they'll come after you. And Satan will use sometimes those closest to you to, to, to come after you. It just is the way it is. And God will reveal sin in the camp. He did it with Achan. Remember, uh, you know, chapters ago? Uh, why aren't we winning the battles? Because Achan had taken the spoils, he did it secretly, and he committed this great sin. So God will reveal these secretive things if he's really doing a work. Now let's go back to verse 39 for a moment. Again, this jealousy that Saul has over his own son. Jealousy is probably one of the worst things that we can have as believers. Do you know why? Because when we're jealous of someone else's money or their looks or their abilities, what we're really saying to God is, you cheated me, you shorted me. Think about that. And if we're jealous of someone who's filled with the Spirit, then maybe we should be filled with the Spirit 
instead of getting angry at them, right? Doesn't that make sense? Sometimes we, we, we weave these little webs, these fleshly webs. But I'll tell you what, jealousy is probably one of the ugliest things that I've ever seen in the church. And, sadly enough, pastors can be jealous of other pastors. Churches can be jealous of, of, of other churches, of their buildings, of what they have. Ministries can be jealous of each other and compete with each other. That's when the body of Christ starts to break down. Jealousy's bad. It's really bad stuff. Right? And I will say this again, if you're in the spirit, you will drive carnal Christians crazy with rage. They will be looking to find something to point at you, to, um, you know, to, to look for some type of flaw. But Saul was a man of the flesh, outwardly religious. John was a man, Jonathan was a man of the spirit. And um, that's what it all boils down to. Verse 47. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan and Jeshui and Malkishua, and the names of his first two daughters were these, the names of the firstborn Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he took him for himself. What I find interesting is, didn't we just read in the last chapter that his dynasty was going to come to an end? How is this happening? Our God is a merciful God. Probably if every time we stepped out of line and God smacked us, we would not sin. But we wouldn't sin because we loved him. We would avoid sinning because we wouldn't want to get smacked. Right? Is that the truth? God is very merciful. There's no indication that Saul changes his ways. But he did say his dynasty was going to fail. Now, he did win some of these battles. He did exert his sovereignty over Israel. He did harass the Philistines, but his days were numbered. So let's look at that as an object lesson in our own lives when we're messing with something or toying with something we shouldn't. Eventually, like Saul, our ministries could come to an end, right? The, the, um, maybe the good example that we've been setting for a while to the unsaved could start to come to an end. God could shelf us. He could put us on the shelf. I don't think I'm reading too much into this when I see that Saul also, whenever he found a valiant man, he took him. It doesn't say that whenever he found a very godly man, he took him. He looked for men who, on the outward appearance, in the flesh, big guy, good with a sword, can ride a horse, let's take him. Valiant men, Ugh. Who doesn't want an army of valiant men with them fighting their battles, right? However, was David a valiant man when he was uh, picked, right? when the Lord laid his hands on him? Well, who's left? Oh, some little ruddy shepherd boy out there. Well, God says it's none of the older brothers, the big guys. Well, bring the little ruddy guy over here. And surely enough, that was the guy. Was Gideon a real valiant man? Well, he was called a, a, a mighty man of valor, valor, but while he was called that, he was terrified and scared and hiding, right, in the wine press. So, I want valiant men too and valiant ladies, but we also don't want all bronze and no spirit. 
Right? We certainly don't want those around us that just rely on their own strength. I want to read a few scriptures, and then I'll close this out. Psalm 147.10. He, does, he, God, does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. Now, we can say, well, you know, we're not fighting a physical war, and that's really nice for the children of Israel. But when we choose our friends, how do we choose our friends? For their abilities? What are we into? What are our hobbies? Do we choose our friends based on what we like about them that really has nothing to do with the Lord? Do we choose to surround ourselves with those who are led of the Spirit? I want to. I don't want it just to be the Joe show and, you know, it's just a little club of everybody telling me how great I am. That's boring. You know what I'm saying? So how do we choose our friends? How do we choose our peer group? Zechariah 4.6, another great scripture. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And that is always how it's going to happen. As, as we look at this chapter, we can ask Am I more like King Saul? He had a lot going on for him, didn't he, in the world? Or am I more like Jonathan? And what do I want to be like? And again, I'll say this. If you're led by the Spirit, expect the attacks to come. Uh, I think about some who were... How many, how many of you remember the Muppet Show? <laughs> remember the two, the two old guys up in the balcony? <laughs> You know, everything that the Muppets did, they, they performed, they, 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 whatever, their heart out, they sang their heart out, and they always had a negative comment. And there will always be those guys in the balcony who are going to catcall you, who are going to give you a hard time. But don't, don't worry about them. Ignore them. Jonathan didn't worry about them. Remember, Jesus spoke about the new wine and the new wineskins. Let us not be like the old wineskins. They were brittle. And when the new wineskin was poured in, a picture of the Holy Spirit, and it fermented and it expanded, the old wineskins couldn't contain it, and it broke. It was the old system. It was the religious system. It was, it was rabbinical Judaism. It wasn't even of the Lord anymore. It was all about the rabbis. You see? We want to be like those new wineskins, that when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and it flows through us and it expands, we can expand too. We can, we can catch, hold on to his feet and enjoy the ride that he's going to take us on. So as we leave here tonight, let's meditate on both of these men and just see which one we're more like. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you.